couple of months ago, uh, our neighborhood association here in the Lettered Streets got to take a tour of the Bellingham Theater Guild, which is uh, down right off DuPont between H and G Street. Uh, it is the longest running theater west of the Mississippi. It's had a show at least once a year since the early 1920s. Before that, it was uh, the first congregational church building. Um, and whether you go to a show, whether it's a play or a concert, everything from the outside seems so polished. Wardrobes and costumes fit just right. Sets appear almost real if they're done well. Uh, but as you know, there's a lot that goes on behind a show, a play, a movie, a concert. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that you almost never get to see. At the Theater Guild, we walked through the costume rooms, and I got to take the kids in there, too, and they just loved it. There were dozens and dozens of wigs and hundreds of shoes and many hundreds of costumes and coats and dresses and all kinds of crazy things. The stage was set, and in fact, Susie Clark was there rehearsing for a play. But we got to go behind the stage and see the large uh, workshop where they will disassemble and kind of you know, recycle a set and turn it into something completely different. There's something, uh, at least to me, intimate about seeing how things work. There's something special about a backstage pass, about meeting a band, you know, off stage, kind of see how they really are in a more natural setting. There's something sacred about getting a peek behind the curtain to see how things work, to see the planning the mastermind that goes into uh, pulling off a, a, a production. This evening we come to Genesis 41, and it's a fairly long chapter with all kinds of details. And we're going to, of course, explore some of those details, but the most important thing I think that chapter 41 uh, communicates to us is a peek behind the curtain of the story of God. We get to see God at work behind the curtain in the backstage. So what I'm going to do is, uh, this is a, a long chapter, I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Genesis 41 and then kind of story tell part of it because it's a bit redundant and then I'll get back in. So just buckle your seatbelts and here we go. Now it happened that at the end of two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed on the marsh grass. Then behold, another seven cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now, in the morning, his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men and Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying I would make mention today of my own sins Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard both me and the chief baker 
Well, we had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And we related to him the dream, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. So what happens is Pharaoh relays these dreams to Joseph. He says the exact same stuff about the seven cows and the seven stocks of grain. By the way, I'm just curious, um, what would be scarier? Seven cows eating up seven other cows or some kind of grain that had a mouth that could eat? I don't know. That is pretty freaky. Just to ponder that. Okay, so he tells Joseph these dreams saying that no one can interpret it, but I heard you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, wait a minute. Uh, Actually, it's God who will give you an interpretation. And here's what it is. The sevens represent seven years. And because you had the two dreams close together, it means this is certainly going to happen. You're going to have seven years of extreme abundance like you've never seen before. The grain is going to flow. But after that, there's going to be seven years of such famine that the world will be in serious trouble. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise to set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority. Let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land and the people will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So the Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all of this, there's no one so discerning as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put the gold necklace around his neck, and he had him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set before him all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I'm Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zephenath Paneh and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now... Joseph was 30 years old when all of this took place, and he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he placed the food in the surrounding cities. Thus Joseph... 
<clears throat> stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. Now, the year before the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do it. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. Father, it is uh, quite a journey we have been on, journeying with Joseph throughout these chapters. And now we come to chapter 41. Uh, we see how you have, by your hand, put him in a position of power and influence for the good of the world. Lord, we recognize as we come to this text that many of us in our lives are still in chapter 40, still wondering, is there a God who remembers, still wondering if we're forgotten in the dungeons of our own sin, our own ailments. And Lord, I pray for your encouragement from chapter 41. I pray for good news, uh, Lord, to be a blessing to each heart here, and that you would be glorified. Amen. 30 years old, and Joseph, a foreigner, becomes the second most powerful man in the known world at that time. Now imagine you're an Egyptian, maybe just a day laborer. You're getting up for work. You have your coffee, because I'm sure that's what they drank back then. And, uh, and you're reading your newspaper on papyrus, of course. And the headline reads, Foreigner becomes vice regent of Egypt, appointed by Pharaoh. Now up to that point, you have probably never heard of this kid named Joseph. You're probably thinking, who is this foreigner with such a charmed life? Wow, the gods must be with that guy. And of course, if you thought that, you'd be very wrong. You'd be missing the part, just a small part, of how for 13 years or 13 years ago, Joseph was someone's favorite son and a bunch of other people's least favorite brother. How 13 years ago, this kid had a dream that one day he would rule over his family. And if you had just read the headlines that he became vice regent, you'd not know that Joseph was sold as a slave. How he then went to prison. And after 13 long years, finally ascended to the status of front page headlines. It took Joseph 13 years to go from favored to hated to framed to forgotten to indispensable. 13 years. What a story. Full of details about strange fat cows and skinny cows and all kinds of clothing items. What is this all about? Fantastic storytelling, theological significance, but most of all, this story pulls back the curtain of life for a moment. 
And it reveals three major realities that I believe chapter 41 is trying to communicate to us. The first of those realities is God's sovereignty. The fact that when we peek behind the curtain of all the, all the randomness and all the human choices, the good, the bad, the ugly, there is someone above it all, invested in it all, guiding it all to His glory and toward the good of all. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham and made a promise to him. He said he would give Abraham, who had no kids at that time, and a wife who could not have kids, he said, I will give you many descendants, and I will bless those descendants such that your family will become a blessing to the whole world. Of course, Abraham and his wife could not have children, so they believed. And when God opened Sarah's womb, he began, Abraham began to see a glimpse of God's sovereignty. A glimpse of how God is able to fulfill his plan even when there are insurmountable obstacles. Now that promise that God made to Abraham was reaffirmed in Abraham's son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. And now we're seeing a story about one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. How would God keep his promise when Joseph was a slave and in prison? How would he bless the blessed family? And how would that family become anything close to a blessing to the world when they can't even get along, when they sell one of their own brothers into slavery? Only God's sovereignty can make any sense out of this. Of course, the Bible doesn't say that God causes the brothers' hearts to be evil. He does not send Joseph to prison. And yet God in His sovereignty is able to take these events and use them to be a blessing. Now being God, He knows, hey, in 20 years, that from the time that Joseph is uh, sold into slavery, in 20 years, there's going to be a famine that is going to threaten the world. A famine that's going to threaten my chosen family. Hmm. Interesting. Of course, Joseph and his brothers and Pharaoh, none of them can see behind the curtain. They have no idea that their lives are going to play a part in God's rescue drama. All Joseph knows at this point in his story is that for the past 13 years, he's been in limbo. Literally, chapter 40 ends with him being forgotten. Reminds me of this game on my iPhone called Flight Control. Anyone know that one? Okay, don't, don't do it. It's pretty addictive. Uh, in this game, you're an air traffic controller. And so you have a couple runways and the planes start coming in. And, but with your finger, you have to draw a flight plan to get them on the runway. Sounds simple. But it gets harder because the planes start coming more frequently. But the, and the most difficult thing is that there's all kinds of different types of planes. So there's big jets that go really fast. And then there's little jets that go slower. And propeller planes and float planes and helicopters. And you can't just have the jet coming right behind the propeller plane because it will smash into the back of it. So sometimes you have to like take a jet and do this a bunch of times and have it go in circles while you get all the slow ones landed. You can see I'm really into this game. <laughs> It's a bit like that with God. I'm not, a bit like that. Like, this, is a, this is a stretch. He's bringing his good creation, all of these choices that we make, all of the stuff in the world. He's bringing all that to a good landing, if you will. Um, but he has to take into consideration that each person 
has different capabilities, different backgrounds, different stuff to deal with. We're not all the same model and make of plane, right? He takes into consideration that it might take 20 years for a famine to come. It might take 20 years for Pharaoh to have some huge events in his life that would shake him out of his comfort zone. It might take Joseph's brother Judah 20 years to have his character shaped so that he can be the brother who finally seeks for reconciliation rather than selfishness. God is sovereign over all and he's good and he's bringing all things, believe it or not, to a good conclusion. But that doesn't mean that we live in a world that's predecided or controlled by fate. Through Joseph, God tells Pharaoh what is going to happen. That much is sure. There is going to be a massive famine. But it's at this precise moment that human action is required. The, the, the notification that a famine is going to come doesn't, have the, doesn't cause the people just to say, Oh well, we can't help it. Might as well just be resigned to fate. No, it's at that exact moment when they learn the news about the famine that Joseph does something. God's sovereignty does not remove our responsibility or take away our role in the world. If anything, it invites your participation and my participation in meaningful ways. Listen to this, what one commentator writes. God's purpose is not the end of human planning. It is the grounds for it. That God's plan is above human plans does not mean there should not be human planning. It means human planning must be in response to God's plan. That would be called wisdom. It's God's sovereignty that takes the evil deeds done by some and puts Joseph in a position where he can be part of the salvation of the world. It's Joseph's, pl excuse me, Joseph's plans in response to God's plan that brings about the rescue of the world. Now, in all of this talk about God's sovereignty and who he uses, there is one character who is conspicuously absent in that conversation. Pharaoh. In the story, Pharaoh is just kind of a tool. He's just kind of, he's a plot device. Right? Isn't that interesting? Which brings me to my second major theme running throughout the story. A major reversal of power. Okay, in the time chapter 41 was most likely set and written, Pharaoh is not only the most powerful man in Egypt, he's the most powerful man of the most powerful nation in the known world. Pharaoh was seen as semi-divine. Like many rulers even in our day, Pharaoh would have been obsessed with knowledge because knowledge in our world, right, is power. He'd have expert advisors and things from the magic arts to the realms of economics and warfare, then why is Pharaoh troubled, literally terrified? Because he has no knowledge that can solve his problem. He's had a dream, and he can't interpret it. And if you're semi-divine in the eyes of your people and you can't interpret a dream, I wonder if you're semi-divine anymore. And if you're that special, but you don't, even your wisest advisors can't interpret the dream, I'd be terrified too. 
And there's more. I mean, it's not just a dream that he had about like bunny rabbits or something like that. I mean, this is a, this is a significant dream. First of all, his dream is covered with the number seven, which in the ancient Near East is associated with fate. So that means in Pharaoh's mind, oh my gosh, this dream, whatever it is, is super important. It's fated to happen. Second, it had cows. Isn't that a freaky dream? Cows aren't just ordinary animals in Egypt. Cows were the symbol of the goddess Isis. But more than that, cows were actually the symbol of Egypt. They're associated, like the eagle is associated with the United States, for example. So just to add a a bit of fear factor, um, have you ever just stopped to think that cows in the real world don't eat other cows? I mean, mean, that's just... That's enough to scare even a grown pharaoh, okay? So he, he's freaking out about the fact that this has got sevens in it, it's faded. It's got the national symbol of the cow and, and the grain because the, Egypt was the breadbasket of, of Africa. Uh, oh man, something's going to happen, I can't understand this. And then third, his dream involved the Nile River. The Nile was believed to be under the domain of one of the most powerful Egyptian gods. It was the source of Egypt's fertility. It was life itself. So if there was a problem with the Nile, Pharaoh would have to wonder, Oh my, have I fallen out of favor with the gods? He's terrified. Of course, it gets worse for Pharaoh. When he hears the interpretation of the dreams, he learns there's going to be a seven-year famine. Of course, famines aren't rare in Egypt or Africa, but famines of that length in that place were rare. If you remember your geography, which way does the Nile run, right? South to north. It's one of those weird rivers. It comes south to north. And before it spills into the Mediterranean, right in the land of Egypt, it divides into all these beautiful uh, arterials that create the fertile, fertile uh, Nile Delta. And what would happen is that they didn't even have to dig irrigation ditch in Egypt because uh, every year the, the flood, uh, the Nile would flood and that flood water would bring fertile silt all over that delta. And when the water receded, bam, there's your crops. Your crops grow up and it's just uh, a land of abundance. Now, the Nile passes through seven distinct regions on its way up. It only has to rain heavily in one of seven regions to bring uh, the Nile to a flood stage. So, okay, once in a while, there might be such a drought that it doesn't rain in any of those seven regions for one year. Okay, Egyptians can deal with that. But to not rain in any of those seven regions for seven years in a row, that is quite a problem. So one day, Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world, with the most robust economy in the world, without a care in the world. And the next day, he's told, it is all a farce. You are in grave danger. There is nothing you can do. Again, peeking behind the curtain of life. When we do that, what do we see behind the scenes? Behind the elaborate set of comfortable and secure life. We see, you know, a lot of the things I put my faith in, my weight on, It's just a facade. It's just scaffolding. We see that life is really precarious. We see that there's no certainties except for the one behind the curtain, God himself. It could be said that this chapter shows a reversal of power, that the high king Pharaoh suddenly lost his power and security. But a more accurate way of putting it might be to say that Pharaoh's power was actually truly revealed for what it was, something of his own making. 
sorry, nothing of his own making. It was power dependent on bigger powers, and those powers are untamable. I think the best example of this reversal of power is what Nancy and these wonderful readers read earlier from the Gospel of John, where Jesus is supposedly on trial before Pilate. Jesus is arrested, beaten, mocked, standing trial before Rome and the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. It appears as though Pilate is in power and Jesus is the one in question. But what is revealed in that story is that Jesus is right where he intends to be. As the dialogue of the story plays out, it becomes clear that Pilate and all of humanity, they're actually the ones on trial before Jesus. It's the religious leaders and all those unwilling to submit to Jesus who are found guilty. It's a great reversal of power that the small things, the despised things of the world are the very things and the ones that God exalts and raises up. That is good news this evening. If you feel small and unimportant, if you feel like your security has been shaken, if you've peeked behind the curtain and found that you were not as strong as you thought, not as secure as you thought, what do we do with that? One response might be to thank God for the reality check because there's good news. Jesus says in his most important, he opens his most important sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So all this talk about God's sovereignty and the reversal of power, there's one obvious detail that's too important to overlook. And that is that God's sovereignty is incarnate. Incarnation means in meat, in the flesh. God is sovereign over history, but he works through people like you and people like me. How does God intend to keep the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How does he intend to rescue his world through people? If you're like me, you're thinking, oh no, that's a bad plan. See, Joseph is, of course, God's man at the right time, at the right place, and the right season for rescue. First of all, we learned that Joseph has become incarnate in a new way. He has become Egyptian. He's clean-shaven like an Egyptian. That would mean shaving your beard, uh, your eyebrows, your, they would paint it on, kind of, you know, okay, and uh, shave your head. Uh, very different from Asiatic peoples and Hebrew peoples who would have big beards as a sign of honor. Uh, Egyptians were clean-shaven. He wears Egyptian clothes, lives in the palace, eats their food, speaks their language, marries an Egyptian woman of high nobility. The priest of On was the second most important priest in all the land of Egypt at that time. God's man, Joseph, becomes Egyptian and dwells among them. Why is that important? Because one reason uh, is when Joseph's brothers come to him in the next chapter, they genuinely will not recognize their own brother. He looks so Egyptianized. And this is important because it gives him space to observe his brothers. And he sees that over those years, by this time, so that's 13 plus the 7 of 
of abundance. That's 20 years, probably around 22, 23, 24 years. They're finally coming down. And Joseph sees that they've changed. And because there's that distance, because he's Egyptian enough, he can observe that then he, he, they've changed and he can reveal himself. And you know what that does? Brings the opportunity for reconciliation in the family that God has chosen to rescue the world. We're getting to that in the next few weeks. Second, by Joseph becoming Egyptian, he will be specially positioned to run their country. One thing to notice, though, is that even though Joseph has become Egyptian on the outside and married an Egyptian woman and had children with an Egyptian woman, he never stops worshiping, one, the living God and only the living God. Two, he names his sons Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he names them not only names that are Hebrew, but have theological significance that shows us that he is still thinking of the dream that God gave him, that he is still part of that family of Jacob. Because Manasseh uh, means to forget what had lied before him. He's now seen, okay, God is fulfilling that dream he gave me so long ago. And Ephraim has to do with fruitfulness. Joseph has hope for the future again. Finally, God uses Joseph as an incarnate presence in Egypt to effect a policy that's going to rescue the world. Walter Brueggemann writes, The transcendent purpose of God is tied to historical action. There could have been uh, no saving historical action if there had not been a dream. So God gives the dream. Right, But if there had only been a dream and an interpretation with no historical response, there would have been no saving. See how those things work? God gives the dream. He gives the interpretation. And, he invite, and then Joseph responds with real action. Beautiful. And by the way, Joseph's economic plan, have you looked at that one? Not perfect, right? It will get the job done. People will survive. But the reality is that every year in abundance, you grow some grain. He's not buying that from you. He's taking it from you, putting it in a storehouse. When you start to hit the famine, all that grain that you grew and was taken from you, you now have to buy it back. And oh, by the way, when your money runs out, you have to give your land to the government so that by the time they come through the years of famine, the rich have gotten richer. You may have used to own a farm. Now you're a tenant farmer. This is not a good economic policy in the kingdom of God, right? It works. And sometimes in the messiness of the world, that's that's how things work. It's costly. But I think that's why the story of Joseph is not the gospel. It's not the end-all, be-all. It foreshadows the gospel. I mean, I I know we've been on this journey together now for weeks and weeks looking at Joseph. And you can't help read these stories about Joseph and not see glimpses of Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus was a beloved son. He left the comfort of home and dwelt in the flesh in a foreign land among different people. He became one of them without forsaking his faith or trust in the Father. Jesus was sold out by his own, put in the prison of death, placed in power by the greatest king of the land, God himself. Joseph was put in the right position at the right time to rescue the known world from a famine. When the food ran low, Pharaoh said to everyone... 
whatever he says, do it. Remember that? When the wine ran out at a country wedding, Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John, his mother says to the, the best man, to Jesus, whatever he says, do it. Those same exact words. Ooh, I love that. Jesus came in the fullness of time to rescue the whole world from a famine of the soul, from sin and death, from blindness and rebellion. Before the first humbled and then exalted Joseph, all Egypt would bow. Before the first humbled and then exalted Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Joseph's rescue plan cost people all their money, all their land, all their status and their freedom. Jesus' rescue plan cost his life and costs you nothing. He fulfills Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread, and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen to me carefully, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear to me. Listen that you may live. Is your soul famished today? You don't have to have some huge thing going on. Some of you do. I find it's like breakfast for me. Every morning my soul feels famished and I must come before the Lord and receive afresh from Him. So I invite you to come and be filled in Jesus. He has paid the price in full already. And He stands before us with arms open. Come. Receive life from me. I want to leave you with that and transition into our time of prayers for healing.